Well, last night we had a great uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service, and I had one of our young people come up to me. Actually, I was, she was here, and I, I came up to her and uh, said, are you excited about Christmas? And she says, well, yeah. She says, but we have to wait until after Christmas service to open gifts. <laughs> kind of saying that sort of accusingly towards me, you know? <laughs> And I said, well, that'll make it a lot better because you'll be able to anticipate it longer. <laughs> to which she replied, yeah, that's what old people say. <laughs> she said, kids, we want to we wanna open our gifts. So I got an update this morning, and it's turned out well. She tells me this morning, oh, we got to open our gifts this morning. And after church, we're going to go to grandma and grandpa's and open more gifts. And so it, it worked out. You know, I, I realize that probably by now, you kind of see this a lot where people will be saying, well, you know, it, it's Christmas Day, finally. Finally, it's not long now, and all of this is going to be over. The funny thing is that uh, historically, Christmas celebrations don't end on Christmas Day. They, in fact, just begin on Christmas Day. No doubt you've heard the song, and it's, it, we're, we're not going to sing it because it's way too long. The song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. And uh, in The Twelve Days of Christmas, it's not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. It's the 12 days after Christmas. It begins on Christmas Day, and it ends on January 5th, following which is January 6th, which is Epiphany. Epiphany is uh, the time of the coming of the wise men, and that is the, uh, the, the word epiphany means revelation, okay? And when the wise men came, that, that is an indication that the gospel has now spread to the Gentiles. By the way, I haven't really mentioned it. I've heard some people talking about it, but have you noticed our wise men have been traveling uh, for the last four weeks. We don't put the wise men there in the manger because they aren't there yet. They don't get there until, if you follow the, the liturgical calendar, January 6th, okay? And so they've been making their way across, and they're just about as close as they can get. We're going to get them there before January 6th. They're gonna, we're going to have them in there next week. So, uh, But that's what the 12 days of Christmas was all about. And it came, there's been some other significance given to that song, uh, it's an old song. It's been around for a few hundred years. And there are those who believe, and this is tradition, so we don't know if it's true, but it's kind of nice. It's kind of a nice illustration. Uh, it sort of makes it into sort of a, a, a monon, mnemonic device, a, a way to memorize things. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I kind of work on memorizing things uh, by using little devices. For instance, I have a friend named Oscar, and uh, when I first met him, I thought of Oscar the Grouch, you know, in his trash can. Not that this guy is a grouch or anything like that, but, but I've never forgotten Oscar's name because every time I'm introduced to Oscar or I think about Oscar, I think of Oscar the Grouch, the puppet, the Muppet. And so uh, the 12 days of Christmas, many people believe, was a mnemonic device, a, a way for us to remember important truths about our faith. Uh, and it was also a game. They said it, it, it was used as a game where people would, would line up in a circle and it would be like, how can you, you know, uh, can you remember all of the different gifts? Well, let me give you what those things are, the, what we are to be remembering. The partridge in the pear tree, and by the way, this was also, many believe it was, a, it was pr uh, produced at a time during religious persecution when you kind of had to be sort of cryptic even about your faith. And so it's a way to, to uh, you know, and maybe we're coming back to that time, who knows, but it, it's a 
way to get your faith in without, you know, the wrong people knowing. The partridge in the pear tree represents Jesus because that particular bird is willing to sacrifice its life if necessary in order to protect its young by drawing predators away from its nest. Again, Jesus, partridge in the pear tree, all right? Two, the, turtle, the two turtle doves are the Old and New Testaments. The three French hens stand for faith, hope, and love. The four calling birds were the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, Wendy, these pictures are all meant to go with the next illustration. <laughs> Just, sorry, I didn't know a way to tell her that without saying it in front of everybody. So there you go. You're seeing how the sausage is made. Uh, the five golden rings represent the first five books of the Old Testament. The six geese laying stand for the six days of creation. The seven swans of swimming represent the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit. Prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, and mercy. The eight maids of milking were the eight beatitudes. The nine ladies dancing were the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 23. The 10 lords a-leaping were the 10 commandments. The 11 pipers piping stood for the 11 faithful apostles. Sorry, Judas. And number 12, the 12 drummers drumming symbolized the 12 points of belief in the apostles' creed. It's a little much to go into this morning, so we're not going to. Somebody figured out, actually, there's an organization called PNC Financial, and every year they calculate how much these gifts would cost. Now, just one, one batch of these gifts would be, as of, 19, as of 2021, $41,205.58. That's a, that's a pretty good love given to you, right? But if you really pay attention to the song, they're repeating the gifts every day. And so if you total that up, it's $179,554.19. Now, since we're, since we're talking about the practical aspects of these gifts, a few years ago, Reader's Digest put out this article where it talked about, it, it was entitled, The Real 12 Days of Christmas. This gives you an insight into my sort of twisted sense of humor. And right now, my wife is going, oh, no. So here's what it says. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. Such a thoughtful gift. She knows how much I love fruit. She also knows my building is pretty strict about pets. So the birds kind of threw me a little. But he's a cute little guy. Day two. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves. Wow, she's really into the bird theme this year. Uh, thank you. I guess I'll just put them in the kitchen with the partridge and the pear tree, which suddenly seems a lot bigger than it did yesterday. Days three and four. On the third and fourth days of Christmas, she gave me three French hens and four calling birds. Funny, I don't remember telling her my dream was to one day open a chapter of the Audubon Society. <laughs> you know what would have been nice? Some bird seed. <laughs> I'm out of saltines, and things are starting to get a little weird in here. Day five, on the fifth day of Christmas, she gave me five golden rings. See, now that's a nice gift, a nice practical gift. That's a little bit on the feminine side, but I'll take it. Day six, six geese of laying. Hmm. That is so strange because I was just telling somebody that I could use more birds. <laughs> Do you have any idea how much bird droppings six geese generate in a single day? Literally pounds. 
And in case you're curious, all six of them have been laying since they got here. There are now no fewer than 75 enormous eggs in my apartment right now. Day seven. Guess what I signed for this morning when the UPS guy rang my doorbell? Seven swans a-swimming. True story. So no more baths for me, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for that. These, these are terrible gifts. Terrible, confusing gifts. Oh, and guess what swans don't get along with? Geese, turtle doves, French hens, calling birds, and partridges. I'm really glad you did your homework there. <laughs> Day eight. I'd like to give you the benefit of the doubt on this one in case you ordered these eight maids of milking online and there was maybe some confusion. But just to clarify, there are now eight middle-aged women wearing bonnets in my apartment right now. And they each brought a cow. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? They're all here in my studio apartment. And judging by the size of their suitcases, they aren't leaving anytime soon. Day nine. Big day today. Not only did I receive the unexpected gifts of nine ladies dancing, I also got a nice little note from my landlord. Oh, it covered all kinds of stuff. But in a nutshell, it was about excessive dancing, illegal livestock, unnatural amounts of bird feces, and me not living here anymore. <laughs> yeah, big day today. Day 10. 10 lords of bloody leaping. Yes, they are. 10 top-hatted jerks literally jumping around my apartment, screaming, wee, every time their feet leave the ground. Why? Why are you doing this to me? I loved you so much, and you've destroyed it. Tensions in here are escalating faster than I could have imagined. The maids and the dancers appear to have laid territorial claims in opposite corners of the apartment. And they're not the same civilized ladies who arrived here just a short time ago. I think one of them stole my golden rings. I'm pretty sure I know which one of them who did, did, that did it. I am waiting until nightfall when I will reclaim them through any means necessary. Days 11 and 12. These final days have come and gone in a bewildering fog. I remember drummers and pipers, lots of them. I haven't slept in quite some time. Food is scarce. I captured a lord today, snatched him right out of the air, and now he doesn't leap anymore. <laughs> you see, I needed people to understand who's in charge here. I'm the king of this castle, and everyone needs to understand that if we're, needs to understand that if we're all going to get along. And now, one of you go over to that tree over there and fetch me a pear, because the king needs something sweet. Uh, well, of course, as much fun as that is, Christmas Day is the day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We focus on the meaning of Christmas. We focus on the mystery of Christmas. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along with me, turn to John chapter 1. And let's look at this whole idea of the Word being made flesh and living with us. It says this in verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came to being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about that light and so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's the key phrase, uh, John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Theologians call this teaching or this doctrine of Jesus becoming human the doctrine of the incarnation, meaning becoming flesh, becoming human. And it's, it's in many cases a controversial doctrine. Skeptics have real problems with this whole idea of God becoming a full-bodied, bloodied human just like us, but much less the idea that Jesus did not give up his deity in order to become human. So there, are, there have been debates, there have been arguments which often don't do very much to convince anybody of this teaching. We know, though, that Jesus would often teach with parables. And when he would teach in parables, he would do that because then it would not only reach their minds, but it would reach their hearts. And I like a parable that was written by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard when he was looking for a way to, uh, to, <coughs> to describe the, uh, the coming of Jesus. And here's how he put it. He said, A certain king was very rich. His power was known throughout the world, but he was unhappy because he desired a wife. Without a queen, his vast palace was empty. And so one day, while riding through the streets of a small village, he saw a beautiful peasant girl. She was so lovely that the heart of the king was won immediately. He wanted her more than anything that he had ever wanted in his whole life. One, on the days that followed, he would ride by her house with just the mere hope of seeing her in, for just a moment in passing. And as he wondered how he might win her love, he came up with this plan. He says, I'll draw up a royal decree and I will require her to be brought before me to become my queen. But as he considered this action, he realized that she would then only be his subject. And because of that, she would be forced to obey him. He could never be certain that he had truly won her love. So then he said to himself, I shall call on her in person. And I'll dress in my finest royal garb. I'll wear my, my diamond rings, my silver sword, my shiny black boots, my most colorful tunic. I will overwhelm her and sweep her off her feet to become my bride. But then as he began thinking about this, he knew that he would always wonder whether she had married him because she truly loved him or was it because of the riches and the power that he could give her. So then he decided... I will dress like a peasant. I'll drive to the town. I'll have my carriage leave me off. And in disguise, I would approach her house and seek her hand in marriage. But somehow he realized the duplicity of this plan didn't appeal to him because their entire relationship would then be uh, built upon a lie. 
And at last, he knew what he had to do. And so he actually shed his royal robes. He, go, he went to the village, and he actually became one of the peasants. And he worked, and he suffered with them for decades. And he gave up his throne, he gave up his riches, and he gave up his power. He actually became a peasant. That's what he did. And because of it, he won his wife. And think about that. How did God demonstrate his love to us? In his son, Jesus Christ, he became one of us. He took that form of human flesh to come and live with us. As John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh. And that word dwelt there is, uh, in many cases, it's, uh, it, it, it means to live. But the word is actually tabernacled among us. He became the way in that manger. And the literal meaning of, of that is a tabernacle was a tent. And so what it's saying is, is he pitched his tent among us. He temporarily lived here among us. I kind of like that. Jackie and I like to camp. So does God. <laughs> he came and camped out here. And think of that. The God who created the entire universe humbled himself like that king. And he became a baby in a manger in a dirty, sweat-smelly stable. The all-powerful God limited himself. Here's how the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, Jesus did it for one reason. God did it for one reason, love. He became one of us. He became like us. He lived with us for years like the king in Kierkegaard's story. And it turns out that this was, in fact, the best way, the most effective way to get our attention, to convince us of his love for us. Think about it. These days, we know all about support groups, don't we? There are support groups for just about everyone, mothers of small children, mops, widows, spouses, alcoholics and spouses, and children of alcoholics, those who struggle with any kind of addictions with food or drugs or work. We, we have Celebrate Recovery that we even support here in our church. You name it, guys, there's a support group for it somewhere. And why are these groups so important and why are they effective? Because the person who really understands what someone else is going through is someone who has been there themselves. The only one who truly knows what it's like to be an alcoholic is another alcoholic. He can understand his struggles firsthand. He can offer support that those who don't understand it cannot offer. And that's who Jesus is, as the writer of Hebrews has told us. He is the true God the maker of heaven and earth, full of divine power, full of wisdom. And yet because of his love for us, he chose to become one of us, to live as a human being, to come as that baby in the manger. He experienced everything we do and then some. And he walked with us 
in everything. People, this is the message of Christmas, that God's love for the human race was so great, he became one of us. He did it in order to draw us into his family, to claim us as his own people by living among us. He grew, and as he grew, he showed us how to live and how to love him. And not only that, but how to love each other and how to love our worlds. If the worship team wants to come back up, we're going to finish up our service here. But think about this, guys. Jesus, the eternal word, became flesh. He pitched his tent here in this earth, and he lived among us, and he grew, and he died in our place, and he rose again. And as John 1.12 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Maybe you got up early this morning and you opened up gifts. Or maybe you're having to wait and anticipate the gifts that are coming. I know that's what I am going to do. I'm going to go back home. I'm told that I'm going to put on pajamas for the rest of the day today. That's, that's the plan that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so maybe, maybe you did that. The question is, if, if you've got gifts waiting or if you've already opened them up, the question is this morning, what have you done with the greatest gift of all? Is it still waiting? Is it still under that tree, whether you've opened the others or not? I say this every year, but I say this because this is the most important aspect of Christmas. It's knowing that the reason we give gifts is because of the way in the manger, it's because of the greatest gift of all that God gave us. And again, as I remind you every year, he didn't just stay a little baby in a manger. He grew up and he became a man and he lived a perfect life. And he went on to, a, to, he, to die a horrible death on a cross, not for his sins because he was sinless, but for my sins and for your sins. And all that's left to experience that personally, and again, I desperately hope you have, all that's left to experience that personally is to open the gift. As Scripture says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believe in his name, and you will be saved. So have you opened that gift this morning? If you do then Christmas is going to last longer than Christmas Day. It's going to last longer than 12 days after Christmas. In fact, let me tell you this, guys. Christmas is going to last your entire life. And even that will only be the beginning of an eternity with God and his people. And finally, one more fact about the 12 days of Christmas. What does it say in the very first line and every line following? On the blank day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Who do you think the true love is? God himself. God is the true love. Who has the kind of money to affect all of those gifts? God has that and so much more. He so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Believe in him this morning and experience life from this point on. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, which became the precursor, the example for all the gifts to follow, the gifts that we've opened this morning or the gifts that we're still anticipating, at least those of us who are old. And Father, I thank you for these gifts. And I pray once again, Father, that for those here this morning who have never opened that gift of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that as your spirit is speaking to them right now, that they would say yes to your desire to come into their life, to change them into the person that you want them to be. Father, I pray they do that right where they sit right now and then tell their new brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room what they have done. Thank you, Father, for this day and for Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.